It is a... I'm really excited to be back here with you this morning um, after um, a few weeks of not being able to, or not being, um, not that I was not able to, but not, uh, but we had some great uh, preachers who were able to stand in this pulpit and deliver God's word over the past uh, several weeks. Uh, it's been a while. And so I'm excited. I hope that you have been encouraged by the last several messages. We, this is our eighth week in Romans chapter 12. It's gone by very quickly from my perspective, and, uh, and hard to believe that we're three-fourths of the way through, uh, and yet we are taking our time. Uh, we are looking at verses or, uh, or even a verse each week, and this week we fall on Romans chapter 12, verse 12, and so you can go ahead and be opening your Bibles there. Uh, but last week, the Rogley household actually tuned in on the live stream uh, for the first time, uh, which was great. Uh, and that's because just a few days earlier, we had returned home from the hospital with our newest addition uh, to our family, little Sayla June Rogley. And uh, believe it or not, we were actually getting some sleep, uh, myself more than Kimber, but, um, but we are getting some sleep. Um, and we're just so happy to have her be a part of our family and be part of the faith family here at ABC and how that is going to impact her life for years to come. Um, we're probably a little bit biased, but we do believe that she is the prettiest baby girl ever born. So um, I'm sure there's some of y'all who would contend with that, but that's just where we're coming from. Um, that, I think that's a good thing since we are her parents. Uh, but we are, I, I'm so glad to be here. Again, this is the eighth week that we have been, that we will be in Romans chapter 12, and we've got four more weeks coming. Uh, and I just want to say to those other preachers, uh, just to briefly mention that, uh, if you weren't aware of that happening, or if you weren't here for those Sundays, or know who those people were, uh, John Matthews and Jacob Reed, uh, over the last few weeks, along with Kyle, uh, have had an opportunity to preach, and you know, I just want to thank them both for using their gifts that God has given them uh, as leaders in this church, deacons, Sunday school teachers, among many other ways that they serve, but specifically to stand here and to um, exposit the Word of God uh, for us as a church body on Sunday mornings. Um, I, I thank you to both of those men. You're going to get opportunities. John will be preaching again next week, and then Jacob here in a few weeks in, later in November. So we, you will have other opportunities uh, to hear them, and, uh, and we, we're just so grateful uh, that people are, again, willing to use the gifts that God has given them uh, to build up the body of Christ here at Alberta Baptist. And then I told Kyle last week, no knock on his other previous messages that I've heard, and I've heard many. Uh, I thought that was one of the best sermons he has preached um, that I've heard, and I thought it was just incredibly encouraging and challenging for us in the way that we serve the Lord with zeal, that we don't become complacent or slothful. Uh, but this week, we get to again look at verse 12 of Romans chapter 12. And so, I'm going to invite you again, open your Bibles, um, whether that's a hard copy or a digital copy or whatever, and follow along. I'm actually going to read verses 9 through 12 of Romans chapter 12, and then we're going to dive in today. This is the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray again. Father, uh, in these next moments, God, I ask that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth, God, would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
God, may you remind us of your goodness that is transcendent of our circumstances. You remind us that there is always reason to rejoice. There's always hope when we look to Christ, his cross, his empty tomb, and his coming again. So God, would you illumine your word, Lord, that it may take root in our hearts uh, and it may bear fruit for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name, amen. Well, I think all of us probably would agree that we love a story where the character has to persevere and endure some hardship, some insurmountable obstacle to, re- to reach the goal that is on the other side of that. We love to watch that triumphant story. And it's not really, if, if you reach a goal and you don't have to press through anything, that doesn't really make for a good book or a good movie or a good TV show, does it? We, need, we want the drama. We need the drama of having to press through the hardships because it makes what's on the other side so much sweeter. But I think this is also true, and I think if we're honest, we would all agree with this. We like to listen to or watch or read those stories of those characters, but we don't like to be those characters. We don't like to have to press through hardship. We don't like to endure tribulation. It's just not in us. That's not naturally how our flesh operates. We like things to be comfortable, peaceful, at ease, and if we're honest, 2020 has been anything but those things for most of us, right? This year alone has been kind of a year that has placed all of us into a sort of story and all of our stories looking very different, but one of having to endure, having to go through tribulation or, or watching others that we love and care about go through those tribulations. We'd rather remain in comfort. And yet Jesus himself in John 16, told us, in the world, you will have tribulation. And yet somehow we still find in ourselves this desire to avoid it or to go around it when possible. And the, the reality is that's just not usually the case and the way that our lives play out. Tribulation finds us. Paul certainly understood this. Um, he certainly understood that tribulation was going to be a great part of his life. In fact, Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. But Paul also understood the second part of Jesus' phrase in Romans 6, or I'm sorry, in John 16, 33. And that is, take heart, I have overcome the world. And it is with this understanding that I think Paul writes these things in Romans 12, 12 today, and these three imperatives that we're going to look at. And so the first of these is this, rejoice in hope. Again, an imperative that God, or Paul has moved from what is true about the gospel in Romans 1 through 11 to what is now true about how our lives should be lived in light of the gospel from Romans 12 on to the end of the, of the book or the letter. And so here we have this imperative, how now shall we live? And Paul says, first of all, we should rejoice in hope. Now, the concept of rejoicing isn't a foreign concept to any of us. Like, like, even if it's something that we don't feel like we personally get to experience as often as we like, or maybe you're, you're a person who would say, or maybe there's people in the world, certainly, who would say, I don't know that I've ever had a reason to say I am rejoicing. But we see it in others, and it's something that we long for. We want to have that in our life. We understand the concept. It's not foreign to us. 
Kimber and I, along with our family, we certainly rejoice at the birth of our two children. Um, we rejoice as people when our team scores the winning touchdown. Like We rejoice at that. We rejoice when we get the promotion at work or the grade in school that we've been working so hard for. Uh, we rejoice, and we know how to rejoice, and we know what causes us to rejoice personally. Rejoicing is just common to all people, but I think it is something that needs to be especially common to Christians as we look at God's word. In the familiar verse, Philippians 4, 4, Paul tells his readers, rejoice in the Lord always. He's saying, in case you missed it the second time, I'm gonna say it again, rejoice. And joy is also listed in Galatians 5, and 23 as one of the fruit of the spirit. So joy and rejoicing are to be consistently evident in the life of every Christian. It's something that's supposed to be there. But our tendency, you see, is to rejoice after things have happened, um, or maybe while they are happening. That's the, that's the way we typically think about rejoicing. That's the way the world tends to think about rejoicing. We rejoice after the fact. In other words, you could say we rejoice reactively. And this certainly can not, is, is not a... It's not a bad thing. It's not a thing that the, that the Bible even would tell us is, is wrong. But here's where things get difficult. What happens when we look at our past or our current circumstances and we don't feel like we have anything to rejoice about? What then? How, how are we supposed to move forward? And again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't look to our past for reasons to rejoice. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't look to our current circumstances for reasons to rejoice. In fact, we should constantly be remembering all the good things that God has done. But what happens when those things don't feel like they're good to us in those moments? What then? What do we cling to? Um, if we were to constantly be recalling these things, how do we rejoice in a way that is consistent and always, as Paul says? Well, I think if we rejoice only looking at current and past circumstances, our rejoicing is incomplete. And honestly, worldly rejoicing can't offer anything beyond that. But the gospel does offer something beyond that. See, our joy will fall short if we only look to our past and our current circumstances. At some point, it will fall short. We, won't find, we will not find reasons to rejoice. So what's the solution? It's the gospel. Quite simply, it is the gospel. It teaches us to rejoice, not reactively, but hopefully. To rejoice in hope. The things God has done in and through the redemptive life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ reminds us of who God is and, what his promise, and that his promises can be trusted for both now and forever. And this brings joy as we look ahead because Christians have the assurance that what lies ahead is just as certain. Indeed, it is more certain than what lies behind. This is the truth of the gospel. And Paul has already addressed this in his letter to the Romans in chapter five. If you look at verses one and two, if you wanna flip there, you can look on the screen. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this right here alone is sufficient reason for us to be rejoicing always. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse two to say, through him, that is Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It stays there. We stay in God's grace. 
always. And that is reason to rejoice. And then he goes on. So past, present, future, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In this verse, Paul shows that the hopelessness of our sinful state that was described completely in Romans 1, Romans 2, and then Romans 3, and then summarized in chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that is now been fully and finally reversed through Jesus Christ. That now we are able to rejoice in the guaranteed hope of the glory of God that we once fell short of. That is the hope of the gospel. And that is reason to rejoice, brothers and sisters. See, joy means fixing our gaze on the unchanging security and benefits that we have in Christ. And this inevitably, inevitably brings us hope. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through you, though, I'm sorry, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. Joy and hope are inseparable according to a biblical worldview, which is also why a biblical hope is so different from a worldly hope. According to worldly hope, we hope we get a raise at work. <laughs> we hope Nick Saban lives forever and coaches forever at Alabama. Um, we hope that things happen, but this kind of hope is nothing more than a wish. It has no legs to stand on. It has no guarantee, no certainty on which it is based. All it is is a desired wish for a, a, a better future or even a continuation of an enjoyable present. But biblical hope is based upon the word of God. Most fully revealed in the sinless life, sacrificial death, and spectacular resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The Christian's hope stands upon the evidence and Jesus' words at the tomb of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But as Paul wrote earlier in Romans 8, 24 and 25, for in this hope we are saved. But now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This hope of the glory of God has yet, not yet been fully revealed to us, but it will. And so we are to wait for it with patience. Worldly hope, again, is just wishing for a desired outcome. Biblical hope is waiting for the Lord's guaranteed outcome. And joy is the inevitable outpour from the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. 
But if everything about life was always joyful, would Paul need to tell us to rejoice? Would we need that reminder? If everything was already as it should be, why would there be any need for hope? If we'd already attained this, why would we need to look forward to something yet that is to come? Does not the instruction to rejoice and the very concept of hope imply that all is not right? And these questions lead us to Paul's second imperative of Romans 12, 12. Be patient in tribulation. Y'all, being patient's hard, isn't it? Like, isn't it hard? <laughs> like, it's difficult for me to be patient even in otherwise really fine circumstances, good circumstances. Like in the line at Starbucks, drive through line. I'll just give you an example of my own life. I can sit there in an air-conditioned vehicle with my family, who I'm having a wonderful time with, about to pay a ridiculous amount of money for a drink that I could probably make at home with a little time and effort on myself that's just as good, and for much lower cost, I would add. And yet, <laughs> there I sit, not being able to handle the fact that it might take five or even, heaven forbid, 10 minutes sitting in my air-conditioned car with my family to get this drink that I so desperately do not need. Patience is hard even when circumstances are good. But here Paul says something even more that. He says, be patient in tribulation. What? What in tribulation? We're supposed to be patient when things are not good? I can't be patient when things are good. How am I supposed to be patient when things are not good? Our culture, our world has made us intolerant of patience. It really has. It really has. But the gospel gives us hopeful, joyful patience. Paul understood firsthand that rejoicing, which he, again, he has just mentioned, doesn't necessarily occur because our circumstances are good. But because our God is good, whether our circumstances are good or not. When Paul told the church at Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always, he was chained up to a Roman guard. He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't go to Starbucks and get his, his cafe latte. He was chained to a guard. He was told what he could do, when he could do it, and all those things. And yet he says rejoice. And there's reason to rejoice. And he goes on in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 to say, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The majority of Paul's life was tribulation after he became a Christian. The majority of his life was suffering. Jesus himself suffered in the world. So when we, are, when we find ourselves in tribulation and suffering, we shouldn't be disillusioned. We shouldn't be thrown off, but we should look to where there is hope and joy in the midst of these things to give us the patience to endure them. See, tribulation is the setting in which so much of Christian rejoicing actually takes place. <laughs> and yet scripture continually tells us things such as rejoice, be patient, and remain steadfast. But how is this possible when life closes in or falls down around us? How do we do this? The answer, once again, is we look to the gospel. The answer is Jesus Christ himself. 
In his book, Till We Have Faces, C.S. Lewis writes, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Our natural inclination in our flesh is to desire tribulation to end as soon as possible. (laughs) And, And in some circumstances, this may be, in fact, God's will for us. But ultimately, God's will is that we draw nearer to him because he himself is what we need most in every circumstance that we find ourselves. It is rarely in times of hurry or in times when everything is comfortable in our lives that we grow closer to the Lord. And I can say this is true about my life. It's rarely in those times that I grow in my faith and grow closer to the Lord. Jesus himself in Hebrews 5, um, we're told, learned obedience and gained perfection through what he suffered in the flesh. The suffering Jesus went through was purposeful. It had meaning. And as, our, as his followers, so does ours. It's not meaningless when we are, we are giving our all to obey Christ. And the hope we have in Christ is so great and so complete that in everything that we find ourselves, it brings redemption and rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering. Not only that, though, Romans 5 tells us, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In another one of his books, C.S. Lewis um, writes it's the, in The Problem of Pain, He says, God allows us to experience the low points of life in order to teach us lessons that we could learn in no other way. Again, it's often in times of suffering and tribulation that there's nowhere else for us to turn except to Christ. He removes every other option from our lives. He, in many cases, brings us low so that he is the only thing we can look to to lift us up. This is the gospel. This is what, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 40, 28 to 31 tells us. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Even young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Not they might, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The patience that scripture encourages believers to practice is not one of aimless waiting, but of expectant, purposeful waiting. Waiting that says, Lord, I trust that no matter how long this lasts, no matter how difficult it becomes, no matter how tired and weak I become, I know that I'll be better for having gone through it because I will be more like Jesus. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And he's now seated at the right hand 
of God, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us. In the midst of tribulation and on the other side of it, God has prepared good for us and glory for himself. Confidence in this truth led Paul to write so much of what he did in Romans 8, especially in verses 31 through 39. I'm just going to hit a couple of high points. But he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's nothing, he says, that's seen or unseen, that's created. Nothing can separate us. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can we be patient in tribulation? How can we know and find hope and joy in the midst of suffering? How can we know that God is for us? We remember that God tore his son to shreds in order to reconcile us to himself. And then he raised him from the dead to show that Christ's sacrifice was effectual for us. How could we doubt? And yet in our flesh, how often we doubt. And that is why we constantly return to the truth and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't Remember these things in our own strength is the, is the great news that accompanies this. We don't remember these things. We don't remind ourselves of these things in our own strength. But the helper that Jesus talks about, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, brings to mind the truth that Jesus taught his disciples and that he teaches us and he reminds us of. We do this in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit reminds us of Christ, of who he is, of all he has has done, is doing, and will one day do, this will inevitably lead us to where we're going to go in Paul's third imperative in our lives, that we will be constant in prayer. Is anyone else out there a, a verbal processor like I am? Never, no, you never would have guessed that. But I, I am a verbal processor. And what I mean by that is, I mean that I am able to better think through things that are going on in my mind, especially if there's a lot there. Um, there's not a lot of room there, but there's a lot there sometimes. And it gets kind of crowded. And I have a hard time processing those things just in my head. But when I'm able to talk through them, even if it's just a wall I'm talking to, but especially if it's a person, I'm able to better think through these things. I'm, better have, I'm able to have better perspective on those things. And when we're talking about prayer in the context of tribulation, that is really, a, I think, a huge aspect of what prayer is for us, that we are able to process what we're experiencing before the throne of grace. We are able to lay everything out, even when we, we can't make sense of it. We're able to lay it out before a God who loves us and who desires to hear from us. What an amazing, amazing truth. The more we go to our loving Father and express our deepest thoughts and feelings to him, the more we find rest in him and the more we find perspective on our circumstances. Tim Keller, who is one of my favorite authors, um, he says, and, and pastors as well, He's, and has greatly affected my life. Um, he says, the basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, 
but to mold my will to his. Understanding this truth about prayer allows us to rest in God's good purposes for us, even in the midst of hardship and suffering. It releases our white-knuckled grip on control and it releases it to trust in the one who's been in control all along and who has a better plan than we do of how to bring about good for our lives. That is the truth that we find, and we find it in prayer. Prayer is such an amazing gift from the Lord, from our loving Father. Well, another one of my favorite quotes from Tim Keller, um, you're going to get a couple more before the end of the sermon as well. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. The king of kings doesn't care what time it is, doesn't care what your circumstances are, doesn't care even how petty your thoughts about them or your feelings about them may be. He still desires for you to come to him. What an amazing truth. What an amazing gift prayer is. And, and Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Prayer is the almighty God of the universe, willingly making himself yours and my captive audience. Because though he has absolutely no need to hear from you or me, he infinitely desires to. That is the truth of prayer, the gift of prayer. And as Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, when we pray, not only do we know that God wants to hear for us, but he wants to act on our behalf, and he will. Prayer gives us access to God, and it brings about action from God. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, said, prayer is one of the necessary wheels of the machinery of providence. The offering of prayer is as operative in the affairs of the world and the production of events as the rise of dynasties or the fall of nations. We believe that God in very truth hearkens to the voices of men. What an amazing thought. But do we see prayer this way? Do we really believe that prayer is where we can find strength to joyfully endure suffering? Do we really believe that when our will aligns with God's, that our prayers have the ability to move the heart and the hand of the Lord? My fear is that often the answer to that is no. I think for many Christians, sincere, undistracted prayer is at best an afterthought and at worst a total absentee in life. The sad reality is that we need prayer, though God does not. Yet God desires prayer, though we do not. I think that's too often the reality that we live in, in our busy world that demands so much of our attention. And yet we are so desperately in need of going to God in prayer. 
I think it was Charles Wesley who said, I have so much to do today that I must spend the first three hours in prayer. Busyness does not need to be for us an excuse not to go before the throne of grace on our, our own, own behalf, but also on the behalf of others. You see, prayer should be the air that Christians breathe. Without it, our faith will get suffocated by hardships we face. Anxiety will choke us. Worry will drown us. You see, prayer enables hopeful endurance. It enables joyful patience. And is this not what Paul is telling us when he writes in Philippians 4, 6, to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, to make our requests known to the Lord? The thanksgiving part there is crucial as well because we can thank God even before we see the results because his results will be better than our desires. Is this not what Peter is telling the Jewish exiles of 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11? He says that we should be casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering in verse 9 are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. And yet after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If we are to have hopeful endurance as we face the hardships of this life, we must learn to pray as Jesus did on the night of his betrayal. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And when we find joy in going to God in prayer, even in this way, we can do so knowing that he will be more than enough for us that he will meet us there. Genuine prayer looks for fulfillment in the blesser, not the blessing. See, our circumstances will fluctuate. They will, they will come and go. They will be good. They will be bad. They will be terrible at times. But our God is good all of the time. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus that went to the cross for you 2,000 years ago is the Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now. And in this, there is hope. In this is a strength for hopeful endurance and for joyful patience. So as we kind of start to close things out today, we're going to look at three applications Three ways, three areas where I believe we can apply the truth that we have heard today. And the first is this. It's individually in our own lives. And, and much of what we've already spoken about, which I, what we've covered to this point, has addressed this. Um, the most natural place for us to think about applying God's word is in our own lives, or at least it should be. Um, and so it's, it's natural for us to look, how do we apply these things individually? Um, well, first, I would say, if you are a born-again follower of Jesus, there is always hope. And there is always reason to rejoice. It's really, that simple. it's really that simple for all of us. In Jesus Christ, there is always hope and always reason to rejoice. Tim Keller, once again, says, joy is deep assurance that you have the only thing that matters. That is joy. He also calls it spiritual buoyancy. It means that we're unsinkable. No matter the storms of life, we are a ship that is unsinkable because we are anchored to Christ himself. We have the only thing that matters when we have Christ. 
So then rejoicing doesn't occur again because of our circumstances and because they're necessarily good, but because God himself, Christ Jesus, is good always. And for believers, we have the choice of looking to our circumstances for hope or to Christ for hope. The former, our circumstances, will always fail us in the end. But the latter, Jesus Christ will not. This joyful hope found in Christ is what, gives, what then gives us the strength to endure and be patient in tribulation. Why? Because not only is our sin forgiven and our eternity secured, but even our present suffering has meaning. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, when he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. No matter how bad your suffering is, it isn't lasting forever if you're in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that, that Christ is not um, suffering with you. He came and suffered as one of us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't feel for you and empathize with you in your suffering. It means exactly the opposite of that. And it means that he is one day putting an end to your suffering forever. There is hope here. We must be ever mindful to fix our gaze, not on our ever-changing circumstances, but on our never-changing Lord. And we remember that our reason to be joyful is Christ and our hope is Christ and that our strength to endure suffering is Christ. We will find ourselves constantly going to him in prayer because that is where we will find everything we could possibly need. So if today you're a Christian who is struggling to find joy or struggling to find hope in the midst of some suffering or tribulation you find yourself in, go to Jesus in prayer. It will not fail you. Keep going to him. He is even now, as we've said, interceding on your behalf and he is longing for you to come to him so that he can lift you up and give you the rest that you need in him. So the first place we say this application is in our lives individually. But secondly, we need to look at collectively what this has to say. And I mean that by believers as a whole. Paul is writing in a section that began around verse nine of talking about our inner um, personal relationships, our relationships with others and the world around us. And so we need to be very mindful of that as we consider what Paul is trying to communicate because there is truth to be found in the fact that our joy, our hope, our patience, our endurance, all these things, our prayer, all these things have not only individual aspects to them and individual importance, but collective importance. Um, and so the first thing I would point out in this section is that our joy and hope in Christ can be an encouragement to other believers. And what I mean by this is what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. What Paul is saying here is that even in the midst of the hardships that we are experiencing as we further the gospel, hearing from Timothy that you are standing firm in your faith, that you are finding joy and hope in the gospel lifts us up. And the reality is we can be that for other people. We may not be in the same tribulation as they are. We may not have ever experienced anything like that, but our hope in the gospel can give them hope in the gospel. That's the first thing we need to see. But secondly, we need to be eager to share our stories of how God has been faithful to us in past trials with the hope that our story encourages other believers in current trials they find themselves in. Some experience that you may have had and and God has brought you through in his goodness and faithfulness may be the exact same thing that someone you know in this church body is going through right now. And you can give them hope that God was with them through that, that God did not abandon them, that Christ was their strength and their rock, and that they can, you can look back on what that was and see how God was working in your life for good. You can be that for others, and we should be that for others. Your suffering has bigger ripples than just the splash it makes in your own life. This is a tremendous truth that we need not lose sight of. Our tribulations, our trials make us want to turn inward. The gospel calls us outward towards others. So that's the second thing. The third thing is this. We need to remember that though Christians often face tribulation together from outside of the church, (laughs) it's also not uncommon for us to find tribulation with those within the church, uh, within the body of Christ. And hence, there is a need for us to be patient with one another and forgive one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Remembering that just as Christ has not completed the work that he began in me, he's also not completed the work that he's began in any of you. We need to bear with one another in tribulation, be patient in the tribulation, and seek to show grace to one another. Fourthly, as we wait for Christ's return and continue to experience tribulation in this broken world, we need to remember that while our light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison, we also need to remember that our suffering and, the, and Christ tarrying and returning has the opportunity for others to enter the kingdom of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9, Peter writes, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our suffering, as we suffer, God is bringing people to faith in his son. And we can rejoice in this. We can rejoice that our suffering, again, has meaning outside of ourselves. As you and I remain patient in our tribulation, Christ is drawing souls to himself through faith. And here's the thing. He might just use your hopeful endurance in tribulation to bring someone to faith. What a glorious thought. Lastly, in this section, we have the privilege of praying for one another, both while we are gathered together and while we're apart. Friends, there is something extraordinarily powerful 
about laying out your burdens before other believers for them to hear and then for them to gather around you and pray over you as you listen to them lift you up before the throne of grace. There is something life-giving about that. And it's something that we should take great joy in. And there's something life-giving about being those people who lay hands on those people and who lift up them before our Lord and intercede for them. And here's the thing, when we do that, we are like God the Son and God the Father when we are interceding on behalf of others. Romans 8, 26 through 27 and verse 34 tell us that both the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ himself are interceding through prayer on our behalf. So when we intercede for others, we are acting like the Lord. What a great thought. We need to pray over others and we need to pray, be prayed over by others. So the third aspect as we come to a close, specifically, how do we apply this? At ABC. I have a few thoughts on that as well. First, let's be a people who take every opportunity to rejoice in who God is and what he has done, is doing, and will one day finally do in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's take every opportunity to gather together to worship and praise him who is our living hope. Second, let's be a people who take every opportunity to rejoice at what God is doing in and through us as a local body of believers. Not because of how great we are, but because of how great he is to even use us and even our suffering for his glory and for his kingdom. Third, let's be a people who patiently endure tribulation together, ever hopeful that the Lord continues to be at work even in the midst of the hardships of the past year that we've experienced as a church. He is pruning ABC. He is preparing ABC. And he will use ABC for his glory and the building of his kingdom if we will joyfully wait on him to raise us up. I fully believe that. Fourth, let's be a people who are patient with one another. See, if you actually press into community here at ABC, it is likely that someone is going to hurt you or make you angry. It's very likely. They're sinners just like you are, which means you also are likely to hurt someone or make them angry. Let's patiently and prayerfully seek to show grace to one another so that at, as a lost world sees and watches us as a people, they see we deal with those things, those trials and tribulations differently and it draws them in, and it draws them to Jesus. Fifth, let's be a people who pray for one another and who pray with one another. And again, a great opportunity to do exactly that happens at, on Wednesday nights at six o'clock, right off from the worship lobby in that conference room on the corner. Now, let me say this. There is a wonderful group of people that meet there and gather there together to pray for the future, the vision of our church body. And I don't want us, I don't want any of you or myself to be a Christian who undervalues prayer for yourself or for others. And so I'm not saying that um, you have to be at this prayer gathering on Wednesday nights. I'm not saying that. I'm not, that's, that's ridiculous. But I would ask you this. If you don't have something that's preventing you from being there, why not be there? If prayer really is the gift that we say it is, that God's word says it is, why would we not want to take part in it? If there's joy and hope to be found, if there's patience for, in, for enduring suffering to be found there, why would we not run to it? I encourage you, 
It's all possible. Be here on Wednesday nights at six o'clock. It will be uplifting to you, I promise. You will not feel like you've wasted your time. But lastly, let's be a people who are characterized by what I'm gonna summarize Paul's three imperatives as hopeful endurance. Let's be a people at Alberta Baptist Church that that are characterized by that. Tribulation and suffering are certainties in this life, but together we can face them with deep assurance that no matter what happens, we have Jesus. And that ultimately is the only thing that matters. Today, as, as we close, I invite you to respond to God's word. That could mean um, that it is for you to ask the Lord for hope or joy or patience as you face tribulation and suffering right now. Come, Come to the altar, come pray, come be prayed with by some of the people who will be up at the front to pray with you. Come to the Lord. It could be that today your response is to intercede for someone else who is experiencing hardship and tribulation. Come, bear up their burdens before the throne of grace. You will be more like your Lord when you do so. Or it could be to thank God for the hope that you have in Jesus. We all have reason to respond in this way. Or it could be that for you, listener out in the audience online or here in this room, it could be your response is to place your faith in Christ Jesus for the first time, asking him to forgive you of your sins and to redeem your life for eternity. Whatever the response the Holy Spirit is stirring up in you, don't push back against it. Lean into it, embrace it, and allow the Lord to embrace you as we respond. Father, You are so good. God, you have given us exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or hope for in Christ Jesus. God, let us find joy. Let us find hope. Let us find the strength to endure in that truth. And Father, when we do, when we come to you in prayer, we will find those things. God, I pray that as your spirit moves, Um, and the listeners here gathered in person and gathered online, God, that you would draw your people, Alberta Baptist Church, closer, nearer to you, that we would be able to joyfully go out in hopeful endurance and weather the storms of this life, being constant to return to you in prayer as your Holy Spirit leads us. Lord, you are so good. You are mighty. You are worthy of all our praise. You, O God, are our living hope, even in a world that is dying around us. So God, remind us of that in this time. And as we respond through singing, through prayer, through coming into your presence in whatever way, God, may you be glorified and may your people be edified. Praise things to your name. Amen.